Hey, I'm Alan Carter. Here's what's on the podcast today. Numbers are down, but that does not mean we're in the clear. Casinos are open, but strip clubs are closed? An update on the Adam Strong trial. All of that coming up. Let's get to it. Now listen, there's no reason to freak out and there's no reason to celebrate. Either response to those numbers that you just heard in the news is incorrect. Because if you get wrapped up in the daily numbers, as I often say, you're going to give yourself an ulcer. You are. So yesterday when it's 700 and you're like, oh, God. And then today it's 554. You're like, that's not bad. And wait a second. 554 is still pretty, pretty bad, really, in terms of daily case counts. <laughs> but you heard in the news that, you know, the perspective of, well, look at the testing numbers. Like, look at those testing numbers right there. 38,400 in the last 24 hours. Last time, we were in the 500s in terms of case numbers. Our tests were anemic, sometimes below 2,000. So as you heard in the news, you know, you just have to kind of put that into perspective. We have a lot more tests. Again, I will point out a couple of other key metrics that I always watch for, and that is the pending number versus the testing number. The testing number, as I said, is 38.4K. The pending number, 54.7 thousand. So again, we still have that lag time. And because we have that lag time, we have this situation where, you know, we might get backlogs of tests filled over a certain amount of time, and then that kind of distorts your daily number. And so then another reason not to put too much faith in that daily number, what you ought to be looking at is your trend line. And the other thing, of course, to look at is your hospitalization, which is a lagging indicator. You heard about that in the news Dr. Isaac Bogosh saying that there is an uptick in hospitalizations. It's small, but it's there. And so as the case numbers go up sharply, we have seen a slight rise in hospitalizations, and that bears out in the last 24 hours, plus 9. Plus 9. These are Ontario numbers I'm giving you. Breakdown by regions, 251 in Toronto, 106 in Ottawa, 79 in Peel, 48 York region, and 62% of cases are under the age of 40. Now, I often say about these numbers is that you got to keep in mind that we're dealing on a two-week lag time. You talk about the hospitalizations being a lagging indicator. That lags even further behind because hospitalizations with COVID tend to happen about a week after a positive diagnosis. So you have a diagnosis, you feel sick, then you kind of get better, and then it gets much worse, and that's when people find themselves in hospital. So those hospitalization numbers, well behind, but what we're doing in terms of a society, what we're doing in terms of our own interactions with each other, that's about a two-week lag time. And this Thursday will mark two weeks since Ontario changed the restrictions on private gatherings, on the gathering numbers, and initially that was limited to Ottawa, Peel, and Toronto, and then a couple of days later, of course, the province made that uh, province-wide. The Ford government saying, no, that we're going to change that and make it province-wide. And what that was is a real wake-up call for all of us. And so as we look at the numbers, I think really what we got to pay attention to is what we're going to see late this week, early next week, because that's two weeks out. And do we see 
a bit of a bend in the curve. It's not going to go down sharply. It's not like all of a sudden back down below 100. That's not going to happen. That's not the way COVID works. We've seen it before. It goes up sharply and comes down very slowly. But if we can see the numbers going the other way, late this week, early next week, that's something to watch out for. On the flip side, the other way around, looking at it, is that two weeks ago, well, we're, where were we? 300s? And then yesterday we're in the 700s, so that's, you know, every two weeks, that's a doubling. That's a metric that you don't want to keep seeing, because if we keep going in that direction, then that means unchecked community transfer. You got the update about Ripley's. Did you hear that this morning? Ripley's Aquarium now confirming two cases among staff there. And all of this will raise many more questions about what should be open and what should be closed. What should we do? Of course, you heard yesterday that uh, the second wave confirmed. Yeah, I'm so. I, you know what? I am so over the second wave. I'm just done with it. Bring on. The, let's start with the speculation on the third wave right now. I'm done with. Yeah, I've known for a while the second wave is here. Good. Second wave is here. Let's look forward. What's the third wave going to look like? What's when are we start talking? When do we start worrying about that? Not to mention that, then we also have the situation that all of our bubbles have been popped. No more bubbles. Bubbles are over. Finish. Bubbles. Gone. I'm so confused by this. This came out late yesterday afternoon. Dr. Eileen Davila, the head medical official in the city of Toronto, came out and said this whole bubble thing, you know, where you and some other households and then this bubble and that bubble and you bring all the bubbles together and next thing you got a big sweet bath and that this is not working out now. Now when we see the numbers and what do we see Toronto numbers 251 the last 24 hours the good doctor kind of going off on her own here because this is not a provincial man provincial mandate. We haven't heard this from the province at all, but nevertheless, here's Dr. Eileen Devilla. Here's the full a bit of what she said about the bubbles here. In Toronto, we have to acknowledge that the extent of the infection spread and the nature of city life means that the concept of the bubble or the social circle no longer reflects the circumstances in which we live. That is Dr. Eileen Davila, part of her I think those are her prepared statements, but who can tell because she just talks like that all the time. I like to imagine that she's at home and she just, you know, is there any more milk in the fridge? That it's just always that cadence. That's what I like to think. But nevertheless, I want to play for you the last bit of that again, because it is so key. Again, back to the good doctor. The concept of the bubble or the social circle no longer reflects the circumstances in which we live. I'm sorry, but your bubble no longer reflects the circumstance in which we live. Your bubble, it just it's, it's just not reflective of the circumstance, dude. So you just I, I'm going to need you to take your bubble and just back up a little bit. Just back off. You and your bubble, get out of my space. This raises so many questions, does it not? Because you think, okay, all right, so 
the kids are in class with like 25, 28 other kids. Uh, so Johnny's off to school and him and all of his little bubbles are all mixing up. And then they come on home like, well, no, we can't have anybody over. Can't see anybody else anymore because the good doctor said the bubble no longer reflects the reality. That doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. That doesn't seem to add up. And here's something else that doesn't add up. Yesterday, they opened the casinos. <laughs> Snake eyes! <laughs> so, so the casinos are open, but the bubbles are closed. No more bubbles. There will be questions from the Premier on this today. Now, as the numbers go up and the alarms start going off, of course, we have the confirmation of the thing that we all knew was kind of semantics, as I mentioned. Second wave. This is Doug Ford yesterday talking about, yeah, yeah, it's here. You surf's up for sure, but we're prepared here in Ontario. Go, Doug. My friends, this is extremely, extremely serious. Everything is on the table. We've already taken countless steps to restrict, restrict gatherings to address the hotspots. We've been working around the clock. We've been preparing all summer for exactly this situation. As Doug Ford, they've been preparing all summer long. They have the second wave plan. It's right here in my pocket. I will tell you about it as I see fit. Dribble it out, bit by bit. Six points to it. Don't want to spill them all at once. You're not going to be able to handle it. Doug Ford again today expected to unveil more of his fall preparedness plan, which absolutely, we've had this, and we got this going for a long time. We've been thinking about it. You know one thing that I was not prepared for in 2020? There's so many things, but this one. This one really stuck out to me today. This has just happened this morning in the House, in the legislature at Queen's Park. Kathleen Wynne, former premier of this province, stood up and asked a question. Asked a direct question to the premier of the province, the current premier of the province, Doug Ford. And then Doug Ford stood up and he said this. She understands the, the pressures of, of this job and... You know something? I, I could never get up, up upset with the former premier because she's walked a mile in my shoes. She understands it. Twenty twenty. Doug Ford saying nice things about Kathleen Wynne. The world has really turned upside down. I'm sorry to inform you, but this whole bubble thing is done. It's over. This was the announcement, kind of, I think, from Toronto's Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Eileen Davila, yesterday. You know, as the city continues to see a spike in cases, the province seeing a spike in cases. However, if you haven't heard the number yet today, it is down from where it was just 554 today. <laughs> Unbelievable that I would say just uh, after 700 uh, on Monday. Obviously, still not a great number, though. And uh, the medical officer of health saying, you know, here in Toronto, we might have to close down more things. 
And also saying, your bubble, I'm sorry, we're going to have to burst that. The concept of the bubble or the social circle no longer reflects the circumstances in which we live. That is the medical officer of health, Dr. Eileen Davila, saying the bubble does no longer fit the bill so that you should only be hanging out with people that you live with, no more combining social circles. Meanwhile, here in the province, we've reopened casinos. And so there's going to be a lot of people saying, well, that doesn't make any sense. And this following the fact that in the province, as of this weekend, strip, strip clubs were shut down. Strip, absolutely shut down. They're done. Finished. Here is Mona, who is a dancer at the airport strip club, complaining about this new ruling from the province, saying she doesn't really understand it. We're told that we have to do all of these things and we're doing them. We're doing them to the to the extent that we are that we're mandated to and we're doing our best to keep people safe. That is Mona, who is a dancer at the airport strip club and joining me on the line is the owner of the airport strip club, who's asked that we identify him by only by his first name. Welcome to the program, Moro. Thank you, Mr. Carter, and thank you for having me. Why do you think the province is doing the wrong thing by ordering strip clubs to be shut down? Well, I, I believe the fact, if you just base it on facts alone, and the reasoning behind it is the contact tracing that they're alleging that is a problem throughout uh, the province and that people lie at strip clubs. Um, there's solutions. The way they went about completely shutting down strip clubs without giving anybody any notice is just ridiculous. It's totally ridiculous. It's unfounded. And it's a shot and at the industry. And listen, uh, we're, we're, we're easy targets. We're very easy targets, and it's easy to pick on small guys. Um, Dr. Zane Shagla, yesterday, the infectious disease expert, said said it right on the uh, the show that you know, if you're following the same rules and protocols as bars and restaurants, the likelihood of getting it in a strip club rather than a bar are identical. But so we have seen cases, Mara, we have seen cases come at so-called gentlemen's clubs. Club Paradise is one of the examples. The Brass Rail, another example. And I want to play this for you. This is John Tory, the mayor of Toronto. Talking about strip clubs, this is on September 15th, after news of positive cases at Club Paradise. This is John Tory. I, for one, think the expenditure of public time and public health resources that they're now going to have to go to to try and contact another 300 people who've been in strip clubs, far and the danger to public health represented by the fact that we already know seven people have COVID-19, that far outweighs whatever benefit there is of having those places open. That is John Tory speaking on September the 15th. I'm speaking with Morrow, who is the owner of the airport strip club. Your reaction to what you heard there from the mayor? Well, my reaction was he goes even further. If you go back to what he said on the 14th, and it's just unfathomable. Someone in his position with his political power and influence is advising the people of Ontario where they can and cannot go. I mean, what's next? Is he going to tell us which grocery shoppers to go to? Because he says, and I quote him, the strip club somehow has found itself open under the rules and regulations as there exists. So we're, we're legally entitled to be open, like any other business in this province. And for, and for the mayor to make that comment is 
well, you, you, you make your own determination of why he made that comment. Now, what he should have said is that, you know what, maybe we should put more protocols in place. I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. We have to ID anybody who looks under 25 anyways under the Alcohol and Gaming Commission rules. So for IDing them anyways, why not make it mandatory to, uh, for them to provide or ensure that the ID that they're giving is uh, the same? Like I believe in British Columbia they have done that. They actually do record the actual identification to verify um, who it is. But, you know, beyond the, you know, the fact that contact tracers have trouble, just the fact, I think, that there is increased risk. That's what the mayor is saying there. There's an increased risk and that it's an increased burden on the health system and that it's not warranted. I guess you're, I'm looking for your reaction to that. Okay, well... What's he alleging that the increased risk? What's the increased risk if we're social distancing six feet apart like to the bars and restaurants are? What is the increased risk? Where is the data? Where is the proof that that if you're six feet apart in a strip club atmosphere, and let me follow, and you're six feet apart in a bar and restaurant, and if the two are identically similar, why? where is he getting his facts that it's more likelihood to get covid in a strip club than it is in a bar restaurant. Well, I, I would think he would be getting his facts from the Brass Rail, the incident at the Brass Rail, and the incident at Club Paradise, both which were seen to actually spread COVID-19, and there has not been that kind of spread in restaurants. There's been isolated cases, but not in terms of a sector like that. But let's, okay, so and let me follow up with bars and restaurants. Over the weekend, there were four, four restaurants that were shut down. The mayor went on TV and he said that his medical staff is being threatened by the establishment. That, and what is he doing to those establishments? He's going to shut them down. He hasn't fined them. He's going to let them clean up their act and, and they're going to be able to reopen. So he's putting the city's resources to, and there's a possibly 1,700 cases potentially in one of the uh, bars and restaurants. Because uh, that that's what was reported. So uh, he's putting it. So is he picking and choosing which business he wants? Are the people, taxpaying citizens of the bars and restaurants, any different than the taxpaying citizens who go to, who attend uh, a strip club? Like is, he, is that what he's doing? Because that's totally not fair, and to me, that's prejudice. I I played for you obviously the the clip of John Tory, but we are sort of barking up the wrong tree in many ways because. Uh, the order is from the province, and the province is the one that has uh, decided that strip clubs should be closed. So your reaction to what Doug Ford has said? Well, Doug Ford, I mean, we wrote him a letter asking for explanations and why he had, he, I mean, he shut us down without any notice. Uh, Doug Ford also made a comment. They made a, you know, listen, there's a very stigma that's been attached to the industry and a stigma that is very difficult for us to get rid of, and it doesn't help when we hear comments from mayors like that, and we hear comments also from the premier, because he made a comment also online with a smirk saying that he felt very bad for the wives who were going to get notified. He's automatically making an assumption that anyone who attends a strip club is married and is going there for solely use to cheat on their wives. And that is totally wrong. And he adds the stigma of why we should be shut down. And meanwhile, these are single mothers who work, who have chosen of their own free will, to enter into this industry, to be able to pay their rent, pay their bills, and support. And a lot of these women are single mothers, which they're not even taking into consideration. I mean, yes, it's a shot at the industry, but it's also a shot at the women across the province who have chosen this profession on how to make their livelihood. 
I was speaking with the owner of the airport strip club who was upset that strip clubs across the province have been forced to close. Would you, would, would it be an easier pill to swallow if it was extended to all bars and restaurants as well? I, I just think it's absolutely. I, I think it's not such a, a hard to swallow. Like COVID does not discriminate between adult entertainment establishments and bars and restaurants. If we're all on the same level playing field and we're all fighting this battle together because this pandemic is terrible and it's affected all of our lives, we, and we're fighting it as a whole, but we should fight it also fairly and not pick and choose our battles over businesses and other businesses and treat them different based on the, the nature of the business. Because, like I said, the pandemic does not discriminate. Mauro, I appreciate that. I appreciate you sp- spending some time with us today and giving us uh, your perspective. It was a pleasure having, uh, speaking with you, and thank you for taking the time to uh, having our word out there so people can understand the frustration that's being felt throughout, and, uh, and I thank you. That is Maro, who has asked us not to use his last name, and he is the owner of the Airport Strip Club, one of many strip clubs um, that have been forced to close as part of a provincial order that came into effect uh, as of 12.01 Saturday morning. Hey, anything good on television tonight? Any sports you're paying attention to? You might be thinking this is a tee-up for tonight's Blue Jays game. Postseason tonight for the Blue Jays? No. No, I mean real sports. I mean real bare-knuckle sports. Namely, the presidential debate that goes tonight at 9 p.m. Joe Biden, Donald Trump squaring off. And there's, you know, so much talk about is my anticipation going into it. This is the first of three debates. And there'll be the haymakers this way and that way. And there'll be the memes. And it'll all unfold live for us on television and then on our social media feeds. It'll be dissected and analyzed and chopped up. Everybody will have jokes. There'll be jokes galore. It's weird. It's almost, I I make the comment about it being a sporting event. It's almost as if it was a sporting event, except for that at the end of regulation, the end of time, nobody paid any attention to what the score was at that point. Instead, what you did is you took the highlights from the game and you chopped them all up and you sort of, you know, discussed them back and forth over the next couple of weeks. And then everybody, the fans, get to vote on who they thought won. That's essentially how the debate works. Here's our Washington bureau chief, Jackson Prosco, talking about the different strategies that are going to come into play here tonight between Biden and Trump. For President Donald Trump, it's really going to be an all-out assault on Joe Biden, trying to drag his family and his son, Hunter Biden, who's not running for any sort of public office, into this debate, and trying to paint Joe Biden and Democrats as way too extreme to lead the country. And for Joe Biden, it's really going to be about portraying himself as a safe, stable alternative to Donald Trump, somebody who actually has a plan for the country for the current crises afflicting it, such as the ongoing protests against police brutality in this country or the COVID-19 crisis, which has killed more than 200,000 Americans. That is Jackson Prosco talking about the different strategies. No, you're the puppet. No, you're the puppet. No, you're the puppet. 
Remember that from 2016? Did that make any difference? It did not. It did not. You'll recall in 2016, we got ourselves all worked into a lather about all the different things that Donald Trump had said, the crazy things. And we chopped all those up and put them on our social media feed and we said, look, (laughs) Donald Trump is not fit for office. Look at that. That's obvious. Oh, wait a second. He won. One of the things that will be on play, in play, the debate tonight, is this analysis of Donald Trump's tax records by the New York Times. And it found that the president paid taxes in India, and he paid taxes in the Philippines, and he only paid 750 bucks in American federal taxes. That's in 2017. In many other years, he paid none whatsoever. No taxes at all. Uh, Trump has dismissed the report as fake news, uh, but hasn't ha- offered any kind of an you know, alternative fact to counter it. And you might say to yourself, well, now there, there, there we have something. Will taxes come up tonight? Let's get back to Jackson Prosco. The fact that uh, Trump is reported to have only paid $750 per year in the last two years in taxes and $0 in the 10 years before that, that is not a reality that everyday working class Americans see or live or even have the opportunity to experience. And I expect Joe Biden to go hard on that point and point out that Donald Trump and, in fact, all billionaires in this country are essentially living by an entirely different set of rules than everyday working Americans who make far less money. That is Jackson Prosco, our Washington bureau chief, talking about how this taxes issue will be part of the debate tonight. And again, I will circle back to my central point, which is I'm not sure any of it matters. I'm just I just think that everything that we have seen in the past four and a half years in the run up to the 2016 election and the election itself. And what has happened subsequently, I don't know if it makes any difference because there is only a razor thin number of people in the United States that are undecided. Very, very small amount. And of course, where they live is vitally important because of the Byzantine world of American politics and how the thing all shakes down into gerrymandered districts handful of gerrymandered districts here and there across the United States that will determine the next president of the United States. And so, you know, we can talk about all of this all we like, and and I'll watch it. I'm going to have to. I don't want to in a way, but I'm going to have to watch it because I'm going to have to see these moments play out real time so that I have the context Because what will happen is those moments, as I say, sliced and diced, get out the old slap chop. That's what we do with it. Slap chop that thing. And then comes the spin. I'll tell you, the, the biggest risk is to Biden, isn't it? I mean, what possibly could Donald Trump do or say? In a debate that you would say to yourself, well, no, that's too far. <laughs> what? What is left? <laughs> Pray, uh, praise some neo-Nazis? Nope, done that. 
<laughs> encouraged the Russians to interfere in the election. Don did it. Okay, well, that's going to happen tonight, 9 o'clock tonight. So enjoy that. We'll be talking about it tonight, tomorrow, here on the Alan Carter Radio Program as we discuss the bits that ultimately likely will not matter. Today is day two of the trial of Adam Strong. Strong is charged with first-degree murder in the deaths of Candace Fitzpatrick, who was 19 when she went missing in 2008, and 18-year-old Rory Hache, who disappeared in the summer of 2017. Strong, 47 years of age, has pleaded not guilty to both first-degree murder charges. A warning that what we are going to discuss here, some of the details are very disturbing. Covering the trial for us for Global News is our crime specialist, Catherine McDonald, and she joins me on the line. Hi, Kath. Hi, Alan. Today being day two, as I mentioned, day one was an outline of some of the uh, Crown's arguments that are to come. What are we getting today? Well, today was very interesting. We heard from the officer who was uh, first called uh, to the house where Adam Strong lived. He's the, uh, the officer who actually arrested Adam Strong. And uh, he talks about how uh, he was responding to this call, this 911 call uh, from a plumber. We actually heard the audio from this 911 call, uh, which was made on December 29th, 2017. And the plumber uh, uh, calls 911 and he says, uh, hi, I'm a plumber. I'm on site for a job. We're snaking a drain and we're probably pulling back 10 or 15 pounds. It looks like flesh. And uh, we're snaking and, and uh, the the operator is like what's this about like she's kind of a little confused and then she she takes a break she talks to her supervisor she comes back and she she ascertains that uh, it was the landlord who called the plumber and in they went and literally they say we've been working on this thing for hours and we don't know what we've hit so that's when this first officer goes in and uh he he speaks about how they decide to you know they look at this the, the plumbers are a little bit you know, they're, they're a little bit shocked by what they have here in this shopping bag. And they, this officer, along with a couple of others, they talk about it. And they decide to go to speak to the basement tenant because it was the upstairs tenants who had made the complaint about the clogged drains. That's when they go to the door. Uh, Adam Strong opens the door. He stands in front of the door. They ask, can we come in? It's, it's like minus 22 out. I remember when, when this happened. It was one of the coldest days I could can remember. And the officer said, we asked to come in. He blocked the door. And that's when Acting Sergeant uh, Kevin Park, uh, said something along the lines of, um, you know, what did you put down the drain? Like, what did you put in, in, in your uh, in your toilet? Um, and uh, what have you been flushing down your toilet that you shouldn't be? And that's when Strong says, okay, you got me. The gig's up. It's a body. And Park says he seemed kind of solemn. Um, he seemed defeated. He dropped his head. Uh, and he said after he was arrested, you know, we, we read him as rights. We told him that anything he could says could be used against him as evidence. And as he was putting Strong in the cruiser, uh, that's when Strong says, I want to spill the beans. And uh, he goes on uh, in the car to say, um, you know, uh, to make more, to make more uh, utterances about how um, he says, I'm just checking my notes here because they're a little out of order. He says, um, uh, he says, I want to, if, if you want to recover the rest of her, she's in my freezer. And it's interesting because, you know, he, this officer says, I was caught off guard. I'm adding this information on my computer. And he's in the back seat, and he's actually correcting me on the way I typed it out. He says, Let, let's get this right. He said, what I said was, if you want to recover 
the body, the rest of her, she's in my freezer. And, uh, you know, so the sergeant says he's, he's just in shock. He, he says, I, I had to compose myself for a second. Uh, and then as he takes him to the division, which is only five minutes away, um, that's when Strong says I considered suicide. I knew I knew it was, I knew I was done and that the plumbers were going to be pulling parts of her up. Um, he has pleaded not guilty. Um, and as you know, after this, he was charged with the murder of uh, the first victim, Rory Hache, well, the most the second victim, really. And it was only yesterday we heard in the Crown's opening that through doing a very, very thorough forensic exam of that apartment that they found Candace Fitzpatrick's DNA on, an, on a knife, on a hunting knife. And they also found her blood in the same freezer where uh, apparently Adam Strong had stored the body parts of Rory Hache. So it's very troubling, this case. Uh, the family uh, and, and some of the close friends who were in the court are cringing and crying as they hear these details. It's, it's unimaginable to think that Adam Strong allegedly did this to these two young women. Speaking with uh, Catherine McDonald, who is Global's crime specialist, uh, covering day two of the Adam Strong trial, obviously very disturbing details. Uh, Catherine, I think what will jump out at a lot of people considering the evidence that we already have put forward by the Crown, that this is a not guilty plea. I understand that the actual utterances of Mr. Strong and the interviews that he gives to police, that that will be challenged in terms of it, it's whether or not it should be part of the trial. That'll be challenged by the defense? Yeah, that's absolutely right. You, and you, you, what's important to note is there is no jury here. So the judge can hear this, this evidence, this testimony, and then they can decide to exclude it because, the, you know, the judge is going to be deciding this case on his own. Um, and so it's definitely uh, disturbing. Another thing that came out today that I thought was very interesting uh, is this officer talked about, um, you know, his last interaction with uh, Mr. Strong was when he was uh, he took him into the cells. And he says, um, we searched him. I searched him, and I seized three gold chains from his neck. Um, one had three gold female female engagement style rings on it. One looked so. And these are these are apparently precious to Mr. Strong because the officer testifies that Strong got very emotional when we were putting them in the property bag. He began to tear up, and he says, "Be careful with my jewelry. It took a long time to procure it." Uh, so that's an interesting uh, statement. And yes, whether or not all these uh, utterances will be admissible is going to be up to the judge. Uh, he's going to hear these applications for sure. Um, in the meantime, we're, we're learning a little bit of insight into uh, who, who Adam Strong is. It, what, are, what are we learning more about him? Are we going to do, because I understand also that the Crown will bring uh, other women forward who say that they had been assaulted by Mr. Strong? So what we know is that they're going to be, they've said in their opening yesterday that they're going to be bringing in women that he knew um, who will testify that he uh, was into violent um, sexual acts, into sadomasochism. Um, again, I think a lot of this is going to be challenged by the defense. Uh, and that, so whether or not, you know, these kind of statements will be admissible is still up in the air. But yes, the Crown is going to try and uh, paint Mr. Strong as, it's indicated as a man who, um, has been violent with women before. 
Often in these cases, they're in the aftermath of the trial, there are very pointed questions to police and about what police uh, had done in terms of trying to find the whereabouts of these two missing teenagers, because my understanding is that Mr. Strong was not on police radar in any way. Yeah, no, that's true. The Crown said in their opening yesterday that Literally, had they not been called to this house by these plumbers to figure out what they found in the in the pipes, uh, they they he was not on their radar. And today, I mean, the defense was suggesting that the police were going to arrest Mr. Strong, uh, and they had already always planned to arrest him when they went to his apartment that day. And the and the uh, acting sergeant said, "No, no." He said, "We we just wanted to know uh, what he had put down the the toilet. We wanted to figure out what the substance was." And he denied that they went in there with the intention of arresting him. And then, of course, he made these utterances, according to Sergeant Park, and that's when he arrested him for murder. How long are we expecting this trial to last, Catherine? Apparently, it's going to last three months. Uh, that's a long trial. As you can imagine, uh, for both families, this is they've been waiting for three years. So in Candace Fitzpatrick's father's case, he's been waiting for... 13 years or 12 years to, you know, to he, for 10 years, he had no idea where his daughter had gone. And, uh, you know, this is, they all want answers and they want justice in this case. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the two victims? It's always so important in these cases that we don't focus on the accused, but that we celebrate those whose lives have been lost. Sure. Rory Hache was 18 years old. She had just turned 18. And she had just found out that she was pregnant uh, shortly before she went missing at the end of August of 2017. Uh, her mother, who is here, Shannon Dion, says she was her only child. Uh, Rory had uh, lost her way a little bit. She was sort of homeless at the time of her disappearance, and she was uh, living in downtown Oshawa. She had gotten caught up in uh, using drugs, and and so occasionally she would turn to the sex trade in order to pay for that habit. And we learned that Candace Patrick had a similar uh, sort of background. She was 19 in 2008 when she was last seen. Her father uh, took the stand yesterday and said he knew that Candace, his eldest of four children, um, was using drugs. Uh, but he, he thought she was okay. She would come and go. You know, he would see her, uh, you know, then he wouldn't see her for a few weeks. But she assured her father she was fine. Um, and she was also uh, turning to the sex trade to pay for this habit. So both of these young women uh, were trying to find their way. They were young women, though. And uh, uh, the implication is that Adam Strong, who lived in downtown Oshawa, may have preyed on these women, and that was what they had in common. And the Crown says it will prove that um, he was guilty of their first-degree murder. And the reason for that is because uh, he either uh, murdered them when they were forcibly confined or during a sex act. And so that's why the charge is first-degree murder. Catherine McDonald is our crime specialist at Global News. Catherine, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, Alan. I want to end the program with an absolutely fascinating story that has come out of Northern Europe. Sweden, Finland, and Estonia now say that they will jointly assess what they call significant new information in connection with the sinking of a ferry back in 1994. In 1994, this car ferry went down in just an hour, claiming 852 lives. Only 137 people survived. 
a new television documentary about the disaster on the ship called the Estonia includes new underwater video images from the wreck site. And what those video images show is a large hole in the hull. And experts have told filmmakers that only a massive external force would be strong enough to cause a rupture like the one seen on the video. And that has raised many questions about what really happened that night to the Estonia. However, the three countries I just mentioned said that they're going to rely on a 1997 report into the tragedy that found that the ferry sank after the bow doors locked, the, the locks on the bow doors failed during a storm. And that the waves came rushing in, the water came rushing in after those door locks failed. There is, however, and has been long speculation about a possible explosion on board the ship. Survivors and relatives of those killed have fought for more than two decades for a fuller investigation. Some claiming that the opening of the bow visor would not have caused the vessel to sink as quickly as it did. The area where the wreck went down has been designated a sea grave, and that has prohibited further exploration of the wreckage. And, and in fact, the documentary director and another crew member were arrested following their examination of the site last September that led to this video and can face up to two years imprisonment in Sweden. It's a story to keep your eye on. That's the podcast for today. Don't forget to catch The Alan Carter Show weekdays starting at noon.